This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Every semester... Uh, at a seminary up in Chicago, there's a professor who teaches a class called the Jesus class. And in this class, he gives a test. And the test begins uh, with this series of questions. And these questions are identifying uh, what students think Jesus is like. And so these questions are, they're kind of finding out whether or not people think Jesus is moody. Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party? Is he an introvert? Uh, After those 24 questions, uh, a second set follows with a slightly changed uh, arrangement, slightly changed language. And in that second set of questions, he asked the students to give, uh, to answer questions about their own personality. And what he found is that everyone seems to think that Jesus is just like them. Everyone seems to think that Jesus thinks the way that they do, that Jesus feels the way that they do, that Jesus acts or would act the way that they act. In many ways, they believe that Jesus is just a a recreated version of themselves. Now, this professor isn't the only one to administer this test. They've seen this across several other kind of like-minded universities and seminaries, and they find the same results. These results would suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more true. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. This confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said centuries ago. He said, if God has made us in his image then we have returned the favor. Our text today is pointing out many ways in which we choose the savior that we want, but we rarely will choose the savior that we need. We often will remake this picture of a savior to look more like us or to feel more like we feel or to think the things that we think, to desire the things we desire, and then that is the savior or that is the leader or that is the hero that we choose, that we elect, that we select. And this isn't a new phenomenon, right? To do this with Jesus isn't new. As a matter of fact, one of our founding fathers indeed did the very same thing, roughly about 200 years ago, where we see Thomas Jefferson. uh, And and this, this author of our Uh, nation's declaration of independence, our third president. He wrote this 46-page booklet called The Life and the Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's also become known as Jefferson's Bible. And in this Bible, in this version of the Bible, Jefferson preferred a Jesus uh, that was exclusively a moral one, one that did a lot of really good things, taught a lot of really good things, a lot of good moral things. Those aspects of Jesus were the ones that he wanted to highlight. That was a a much more preferable picture of Jesus 
for him, this exclusively moral one. So here's what he did. He went throughout his Bible, took a pair of scissors, and cut out all of the sections that would show Jesus's divinity, that would show Jesus's perfection, that would show Jesus's hatred of sin, that would show Jesus's connection to this idea of a God. Anything relating to his miracles, anything related to the resurrection, they were all excised out of his Bible. And after doing that, uh, all of a sudden, this Bible, as a, as a result, the, the Bible ends, his Bible ends with a stone being rolled over the tomb with the body of Jesus sealed there forever. Now, this should not be a shock to us because this is not unlike what any of us are prone to do. So at that time, many of the founding fathers and many educated citizens in the new world, they rejected miraculous occurrences and prophecies. They rejected the idea of this kind of overly kind of God-centered world. I know that we typically like to imagine uh, the founders and this being this, this Christocentric thing. You had many folks who were deists and they believed in the idea of a God to some degree. But this idea of a God that was beyond just being transcendent, but was imminent, close to us, engaging with us, and actually showing himself to us, many of our founding fathers did not actually believe that. So they embraced the idea of a well-ordered universe created by God who withdrew into detached transcendence. So much so that in 1813, Jefferson wrote a letter to John Adams in what he referred to as his wee little book of 46 pages. He said it was based on a lifetime of inquiry and reflection and contained his quote, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals, which has ever been offered to man. This should not shock us that either a, we will just remake a savior in our own image or b, select aspects of the savior that we like and ignore the rest. Psychologists uh, use a test called the Rorschach test, right? This ink block uh, test. And, and many t in many ways, this is what we do with scripture. So this test, ultimately, you have a blot that's just on this piece of paper. And the blot really doesn't resemble anything. It just looks like a splash of paint or ink that's just been thrown against a canvas. And so whatever the patient sees is their projections of their own personalities, their own emotions, their own thoughts. So when you ask the question, what is Jesus like? Or what savior do I need? Or what do I expect out of a savior? It's a kind of religious Rorschach test because we tend to project ourselves onto Jesus or we project ourselves onto our heroes. We project ourselves onto our elected officials. We project ourselves onto our pastors. We project ourselves onto any type of person that we think is going to bring us what we believe we need. And if we believe we need, which often we do, if we believe that we need more power, then we'll project that onto any leader we think we want. If that leader is going to bring me power, I will overlook all these other things that don't even look like Jesus, because those aspects are the things that will promise me that I will attain or maintain power. And so we do that with our leaders. We do that with each other. Sometimes we do that with loved ones, spouses, family members, friends, right? 
If, if there are family members that, that may see something differently or value something differently, I now am ready to just cut them out completely. Why? Because I've already created what this savior mindset should be. I've already created how we should be thinking or feeling. And so to that end, when we look at this case that we're going to look at now, this case of Barabbas, this epitomizes this mindset. It perfectly encapsulates the ways in which we are prone to remake saviors and leaders in our own image. And then we worship that. We almost create an idol out of that. Now, this text we're going to look at, it might stretch you. Because it's, it's not the main part of the story, but it still is a huge part of the story. So there are a few things that we need to see in this story that I hope we can bring out when we're looking at this, this choice that's presented to this audience in this text between choosing Jesus and choosing Barabbas. Three things I want us to know. We want Barabbas. Just get that in your head now. However you've looked at this story, we want Barabbas. We are Barabbas. And Jesus died for Barabbas. These are the places we're going to go in this text. So as we read through this passage, we're in the book of John, but we're going to read, uh, this is just maybe two verses that are here in this text. After reading th these two verses, we're going to go to Matthew, who gives a much deeper detailed description of this exchange uh, between the Jewish crowd and Pilate as they're deciding what to do with Jesus or Barabbas. And I think it's important because John doesn't go into as much detail as Matthew does. So we're going to read this text. If you remember, we just came off of last week and we're looking at the ways in which uh, Jesus and Pilate have been talking and interacting. And Pilate is thrown by some of the things Jesus has been saying. Pilate is asking. He ends that part of the conversation with, what is truth? Remember, Jesus said, um, when, when Pilate is asking, they're saying you're the king. Are you really a king? And Jesus is saying, you've spoken. Do you know the truth? What is the truth? This, I come to testify the truth. And Pilate is just like, well, what is truth? I don't quite know what that means. Then we lead to this portion of the text. And here's what we see in, in John 18. Uh, verses kind of the second part of 38 all the way through 40. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Before we end, we're going to end here, but I'm going to move over to Matthew because listen to this exchange that gives us a little bit more detail about just who Barabbas was and maybe why they would have ever chosen Barabbas over Jesus. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 15. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, 
What should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. This, these are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here in this text, you know, we can look at a quick synopsis of what's been going on here. We've got this Roman governor, Pilate, who we've talked about before. He's questioning Jesus. Pilate could find no fault under Roman law in anything that Jesus had said or anything that Jesus had done. And he didn't want to be responsible for sentencing Jesus, this innocent man, to the death penalty. He couldn't find any real grounds legally to do so. Now, apparently, according to this text, there is this custom where he would release one prisoner by the Jewish crowds every year during the Feast of Passover. In many ways, if, this is, if it happened in this way, it very likely could be that uh, he wanted to continue to engender some degree of goodwill with the Jewish crowds. Because, again, they really didn't want any more, kind of, any more hostility, any more riots, any more looting that had already occurred uh, within that community. So for whatever reason, these, this was the custom that would happen. And so Pilate said, hey, listen, I'm trying to free myself of doing this with this innocent man. There's two people here that are on trial, that are, that are, that are going to be convicted, and I'm going to give you the choice to release one. He was hoping that they would say, fine, give us Jesus, don't release Barabbas. He gives them this choice. This picture, this, this choice, this decision is very symbolic and very real about the decisions we have to make every day. Not, not just personally, but even in the ways that things look, in the ways that we make choices in our very society. Which, which savior, or which leader do we want? Jesus or Barabbas? Now, there are some striking similarities between the two, and it might surprise you to, to learn this. Uh, and Barabbas is not here in this text coincidentally. It's not just happenstance that there's a guy named Barabbas that happens to be here uh, as this, uh, to be juxtaposed alongside Jesus. It's very intentional. If you take a deeper look into who Barabbas was, as I've studied this, I'm convinced that I, that you, that we still want Barabbas. We're still wired to do so. So who was Barabbas? We don't get a, t a ton about Barabbas in this text. He's only kind of briefly mentioned. So it's really easy to overlook just how significant he is to the story. Here's the first thing that we know. Barabbas was not this man's first name. It's a very, there's a question we should ask of this text whenever we see this. Because throughout the scriptures, when people are named, their first name is always given. This is a patronym, right? This, this, this word that relates to who their father was. Anytime you had, uh, depending on you know, what your dad's name was, that would determine kind of the title that would serve as a suffix to your first name. So if, if your name was John and your son was born and your son's name was Mark, then it, your name in, in Hebrew would be Mark Bar, meaning son of John. In our language today, we would say Mark Johnson. That's how all those names got created. Johnson, Harrison, Donaldson. It just meant that person was the son of Donald. That person was the son of Harris. That person was the son of John. So this man Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, just simply meant uh, Bar-son of. 
And then Abba or Abbas, son of the father or, or, or a bar rabboni or bar rabbi, meaning son of the teacher. So Barabbas, whatever his first name was, we know this was his last name. We know that this man was the son of some kind of a teacher, rabbi, some kind of a leader. Some way his dad was somebody that was of repute, right? And we know that, that also he was, he was well known because his name literally is, is meaning son of the father in some way. People knew him, probably knew his dad. You see, back then and now, it wasn't enough to know who you were. Your name told people whose you were. And yet Barabbas is a very generic name. It's very odd for him to just be listed as Barabbas here. It's very odd to just list somebody's last name here. In other words, he had to have had a first name. And here's why I think it matters. If you read through some of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew 27, many of them will list Barabbas' first name here. Many of them will list his actual name next to the name Barabbas. And many acknowledge that his actual name was Jesus Barabbas. You're looking at a side-by-side -side comparison of Jesus, the very son of God, the son of the father, and a man named Jesus, son of the father. Now, if that doesn't preach by itself, I don't know what will. You're looking at this constant decision that this decision these folks had to make at that very moment. Two men named Jesus, two men who represent a type of saving, two men that represent a type of salvation. And many scholars acknowledge this. One scholar, D.A. Carson, put it this way. On the whole, it is more likely that scribes deleted the name Jesus from Jesus Barabbas out of reverence for Jesus the Christ and then added it in order to set a startling, if not grotesque, choice before the Jews. One of the earliest church fathers, Origen, had, had, had campaigned heavily to remove the name Jesus from Matthew 27 that was applied to Barabbas because he didn't like the idea of such a sinful man having that name. Now, it's, it's interesting because Jesus was a very common name. It's, it's a kind of a transliteration of the word Joshua. It's a very common name that was there, or Yeshua. It was a name that was used pretty, pretty often. It wasn't like special by itself. And so, but for whatever reason, the early folks were like, we don't know how we feel about having this name there because it just, it feels sacrilegious, if you will. But, but the original authors included it for that reason, this startling choice. Now, there's some other things that we have. We have this side-by-side -side comparison of two men, names very similar, right? Both promising a type of salvation. They're representing two types of saviors, the savior that you think you want and the savior that you actually need. We are all very good at identifying the saviors we think we want because we identify the things we think are hurting us the most. We identify the things we think that we need the most. And then that's what we then confer onto a certain leader. So if it's like, I think my biggest problem is this, then I need the leader that's going to satisfy that. If I think my biggest problem is my loneliness, I need a leader that's going to promise me companionship. If I think my greatest problem is my, is, is my position in society, then I will find the leader that will help me upgrade my position in society. Those are my greatest needs, which tells me which savior that I want. This is where the people were. Now, how do we know this? 
Well, this is where we need to understand more about who Barabbas was, right? Barabbas was more than just a common criminal here. He was more than just a guy that did a couple of bad things here or there. When you look at the books of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of, uh, and, and, and the ways that they refer to Barabbas, they don't just call him a criminal. They refer to him as a murderer. As we saw in John 18, 40, the, the text that we started with, he's called a robber. The word for robber actually gives us a better picture of what type of group he likely was a part of. It actually refers, that word that's used for robber, it's, it's a word that refers to this religious movement known as the zealots. These zealots were folks that were fiercely religious and fiercely patriotic. You remember, we've talked about this before, Israel was no longer an actual nation at this time. They were a nation that was known to resist Roman domination, and they didn't like the Roman dominion that was there. They had shown they would voice their displeasure. displeasure. Again, they would cause these demonstrations and riots, all these things that would occur. And so they were known to be kind of a discontented, malcontent group of folks. And so the Roman government would pacify them. They were allowed to exist as as a quasi-nation. As long as they followed Roman rules, as long as they paid taxes to Rome. So you know these zealots, they were eagerly awaiting restoration of their rights as a Jewish nation again. They were waiting for the time when their flag would rise high again. They were waiting for the time where they would have real military and political might again. They were waiting for the time where they would be respected by the other nations of the world again. They were waiting for a leader to make Israel great again. That is the leader they wanted. That is the leader leader here that they elected. And here's what's interesting about that. Because they believed their greatest need was to be made great again, they were willing to overlook any of the other things that Barabbas was guilty of. Sometimes it's easy to look and go, man, how is it even possible for somebody to choose this? Well, if the savior that you want promises you a degree of power, you overlook all of the ill reputed things that are true about that person. You overlook some of the reprehensible things about that person because you're getting some power in return. It's the, it's the most dangerous exchange. Barabbas was a patriotic rebel. You see, for the zealots, what they would do is they believed that because it was their God-given right to be that kind of a nation, then, then it was okay to go and rob people within the Roman government. It was okay to go and loot areas. It was okay to take things uh, that they believed were rightfully theirs. It was okay to kill people in the process because they thought God's kingdom has to be restored, and that's going to be restored by this political bite that we can bring back into power. And any leader that we can find that will restore that to us, that's the one that's our savior for us. And so here you've got Barabbas is not just this evil, you know, insidious kind of devilish demonic creature. This is a man who is a patriotic rebel, like a Jewish Paul Revere, focused on change through self-redemption, not redemption through the coming Messiah. 
Scripture refers to him as an insurrectionist. They even use the Greek word that means one who rises up against authority and institutions. You see, for one person, he might have been a seditionist or possibly even a terrorist. But we all know one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. This is who Barabbas was to many. Barabbas was a revolutionary hero fighting for Jewish civil rights, seeking better treatment and independence from the Roman Empire. He was the MEGA candidate. He didn't want to wait for a Messiah to deliver the Jewish people from the uh, tyrannical Roman Empire. The folks didn't want to wait for the real Messiah to do that in the way he would do it. They, he wanted to free his people from the yoke of Rome through political and violent means. A coup d'etat, the ultimate form, if you will, of the ways people have viewed kind of liberation theology by any means necessary. And then he and his crew were caught. They were tried. They were convicted and they were condemned to the harshest death penalty known at the time. Crucifixion. Ways in which the Romans would almost demonstrate to the rest of the world. You don't cross us. People are going to know. That if you cross us, this is what awaits you. And so we, and we know this, there's a really good reason to believe that the thief on the cross next to Jesus that we see later was likely a member of the zealots. Why? Well, he was a thief. Stealing wasn't capital punishment, wasn't worthy of capital punishment. Clearly, he was probably a thief in the ways that zealots were thieves, where they would steal, kill, do anything they have to for the cause. So he likely had killed or done something horrific like that. He likely was a part of Barabbas's crew. And so usually when we get to this story, right, because we realize, okay, we see how we want Barabbas. We'll, we'll look at the story and go, I can't believe these folks would exchange Christ for a common criminal. We'll sit back and we'll view them in a way that implies that we wouldn't have made the same choice. But we are actually no different. The Jewish crowd in the story represents the question that every one of us has to ask daily. Which Jesus do I really want? This isn't even like, you know, Jesus versus some wildly different person. It's which Jesus do I really want? Which representative of a savior do I really want? Listen, listen if this sounds anything like you. The crowd wanted a customized Jesus. Right. Kind of the Thomas Jeffersonian approach to Jesus. They wanted there's certain things about Jesus that I really like. I'm going to hold on to that. The other stuff I'm going to push to the side. So all the ways that this man doesn't embody the heart of God, I'm going to ignore that because of the things that I know I can get from him at the time or from her at the time. Customized, right? They wanted to see uh, a Jesus that was customized to fit their desire for political change, for political power. This desire for self-redemption. They wanted fair representation. They wanted economic and political freedom. They wanted a restoration of their rightful place among the nations. They wanted their rights fought for. And the Jesus Christ didn't fit in with what they believed to be their greatest need. But Jesus Barabbas did. They wanted the one that would make Israel great again. And so while Jesus Barabbas might have a similar name, 
and might be claiming to play a similar game, they had no problem overlooking all of the horrific things about who Barabbas was because they knew they were going to get something in return. So when we look at this, see if this is anything like us when we go, man, how is it possible that somebody can not choose the heart of God and choose somebody who is so self-motivated, so focused on self and what self is capable of doing and bringing about real help and change? How is it possible that somebody can look at a Barabbas and go, I want him over Jesus? Well, it's the same way that it's easy for us to go, I can overlook. I'm willing to overlook ways in which this particular leader treats people or talks about people or dehumanizes people or cages people or uh, allows people to die. Or, and this happens all over the world. It's not just in America. It's very easy when you know you're getting something and you know you're going to get some kind of restored power. It's easy. You know, it's easy for us to look even at folks during World War II in Germany and go, how is it even possible that people could allow that kind of a man to rise to power? How is it even possible to have a leader vilify whole groups of people and dehumanize whole groups of people with their words before they ever do anything physically? How was it possible? Well, it was possible because ultimately, if you were German back in the 20s and 30s, you, have been, you had been hit horribly by the Great Depression. You were hit also because you were still paying reparations from World War I. Your economy was shot. You barely could eat meat. There are stories about people digging up people from graves and eating just because they didn't even have meat to eat. It was really, really hard. So if I feel like that I need something to restore me just to a basic set of advantages, a basic set of an ability to subsist and exist, if this leader is promising something that will restore some sense of power, I'm willing to overlook all the ways that he dehumanizes other people. They're not different from us. This is who we really are. If we remake the savior we want into the savior we need, we will stand by and watch other people cry, be harmed, and bleed. This is not something that is, that is this should be anything different for us. This shouldn't be shocking for us. In the same way that the Jewish community was there, really in this election that they were in, because they were in an election, Pilate is giving them an opportunity to select and elect the person to be released for them. And they have to make this choice and they go, who do I choose? Who am I casting my vote for? Well, who's going to restore the most power to me? That's who I want. But he did all these horrible things and he killed people and he harmed people. That doesn't matter. The greater good is what matters. And if it means that this, that our nation is going to be back on top again, I don't care who they hurt. I don't care what they do. I don't care how they have dehumanized. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about what aspects of God's heart are not on display. I don't care about what aspects of God's heart are offended. I love the fact that my power is defended. So I ask you, what do you believe to be your greatest need? What do you think your greatest need is? You've got to answer that question because whatever you believe to be your greatest need will determine which Jesus you want. That's how it works. You see, they were in the situation where they had a tale of two Jesuses, if you will, and they had to make this decision. Which Jesus do we want to be released? Well, that just depends. What's my greatest need right now? Whatever you believe your greatest need is will determine which attributes of Jesus you will emphasize. So if I, if I, you know, the, the, the problem here is that so often we 
can misidentify our greatest need. So what do we do? We overemphasize certain attributes of Jesus at the expense of others. And in so doing, we carve out the Jesus we want based on that. Sometimes they are based on very real, biblical attributes of Christ. But then we often will misidentify our greatest need and we highlight an attribute of Jesus at the expense of his other equally important attributes. So what do I mean? If I think that my greatest need is comfort, well, Jesus is a comforter, so I'll emphasize Jesus as comforter above all other attributes like holiness, and I'll find myself entangled in very dangerous, damaging, sinful relationships that help satisfy my desire for comfort, but might cause any number of other damages to me or other people that I love. But Jesus will understand, right? He's a comforter. Highlight one attribute at the expense of the other. If I think my greatest need is relationships overall, I will emphasize relationships at the expense of lovingly encouraging one another to battle and hate sin, individual sins, corporate sins of injustice, well, I love peace. God is a God of peace. So I'm going to highlight peace at the expense of being a courageous truth teller, speaking the truth about God's heart, even when it means it might cause some dissension, right? A lot of us, we love theology up until it gets in the way of relationships. But God is about relationships, right? So, so we'll say things like, well, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And it sounds cute. It's been proven it was never truly said by St. Francis, but we'll often quote that. But at the same time, the scripture says, uh, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We actually need to engage and say, hey, well, I believe and I feel. Well, that's great, but also here's what God's word says. But if I highlight one aspect of God and who he is at the expense of the other, I've kind of remade a new savior. Here's another. If I think, and this is very near and dear to me, if I think that my greatest need is my healing, then I will look to Jesus to be a healer at the expense of the other attributes of his sovereignly working all things to bring maximum glory to himself. So if he chooses not to heal, I begin to question his goodness. And this was definitely the case for me. Some of you know, roughly seven years ago, uh, my mom uh, passed away uh, at the young age of 54. And uh, I, I was away, I was in Israel when it happened. I was on this trip, this kind of Bible study trip in Israel. And it was a 10 day trip, it was a gift, it was this incredible blessing I was able to get. And, uh, and while I was there, um, my, my mom, the day that I got there, my mom began to decline in her health really, really rapidly. She'd gone to the hospital for a routine uh, uh, elective surgery and there were lots of complications. And so while I was there, the day that I landed, I got word, and I'm finding out how she's doing, and I, she's touch and go, she's stable, then she's in a coma, then she's stable, then she's in a coma. And so I'm going back and forth checking, finding out how I'm doing, and I've got our little kind of, pre, uh, our Bible study you know, group that's in Israel all praying for my mom. And I gotta be honest with you, for me, I would, I would get these words on how she was doing, I'd find out how touch and go she was, I would pray the right thing concerning God's will, right? Lord, I want your will to be done, and I really want you to bring glory out of this. And, and, but in my heart of hearts, I wanted my mom healthy. I wanted my mom 
alive. And I prayed for that. Nothing wrong with that. I, I prayed for that. And then early on, uh, as, as, as uh, the trip goes on through Israel, I'm praying and our whole team is, is praying and, and we're praying. We want her to be healed and we want her to be well because we know God can do it. And so we're praying that. And I'm scared and I'm worried the same way anybody else would be. And then but on day 10, the final day in Israel, I get word early that morning at five something uh, in the morning, Tel Aviv time, that my mom had, had passed. And... I remember after getting that call, I can't even describe the bevy of emotions that I began to feel. I, I, I felt frustrated. I felt angry. I had all of these thoughts. I can tell you this, the temptation to question and doubt God was certainly there. You know why? Because I still wanted him to be a healer more than I wanted him to be sovereign and in control of all things. And that makes sense. That's not, that's, not a, that's not a shock. I believe, I'd like to believe that all of us on some level have felt or would feel something like this. I knew, I knew these things about God. I knew that he was sovereign and I knew that he was in control and I knew that he was good, but, but I needed goodness to be defined this way. Because I know you're a healer, so I, I need you to be that for me right now. I don't want to, I don't want to see these other aspects right now. This is the aspect that I want to index more highly than anything else. I want him to be a healer. The whole idea of him being sovereign, it just was so much for me. I couldn't handle that. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is the case for everyone every time. What I am saying is that I found myself remaking Jesus into another Jesus. Jesus is a healer. There's no question. And I believe Jesus is a healer to this day. And I love that attribute about him. But in that moment, I preferred that attribute over his being sovereignly over everything. I prefer that attribute over him somehow, inexplicably, still using things to bring glory to him. To this day, I struggle with that because on a very personal level, we still have to wrestle with which Jesus we want, this total picture of who Jesus is or these aspects of him that I want at the expense of others. Ultimately, I didn't want just Jesus. I wanted my own Barabbas at times and still do. And oftentimes this can create this why God complex, right? Healer is greater than sovereign equals questioning, right? False expectations often lead to disappointment, right? So I index the thing about God so high. Now I expect it. It doesn't happen. And now I'm like dejected. I don't know what else to do. I don't know where else to turn. I don't know how to hold on to anything. This is what happens when we recreate, even in the most innocent ways and even in the most understandable ways we have to be careful not to keep continually remaking jesus into the one that we need most in the moment we need all of him and sometimes it takes a lifetime trying to understand all of him trying to put into context the horrific things we've had to deal with but we need all of him when we exalt one attribute of christ at the expense of another we customize we customize Jesus from being the Christ into being another Jesus Barabbas. So when you look back at the Jews in this story, 
The things they wanted, they weren't necessarily bad. The things I wanted weren't necessarily bad. Freedom isn't bad. Justice isn't bad. Victory isn't necessarily bad. But what they wanted was someone who promised these things, who spoke like they spoke, who felt like they felt, who looked like them, who met their greatest needs the way they wanted it. So yeah, I wanted Barabbas. We, we want Barabbas. But not only do we want him, we often are Barabbas. Because not only is it that my greatest need determines the Jesus that I want, the Jesus that I want becomes the Jesus that I imitate. So it's not even enough to go, well, I want that, I want that, and I need that, and I'm going to go for that and vote for that and elect that and select that. I begin to look like the Savior that I want. I begin to look like the Jesus that I want. So I start imitating that Jesus. Our sin nature orients us toward ourselves. So this means that we often like things that remind us of ourselves. We like being around people that affirm our identity. This means I like people who think like me. I like people who talk like me. I like people who even look like me. Forgive the poor grammar, but in the words of an old NFL star, I love me some me. That's how we function. That's who we are. I like the types of friends that I pick. I pick those kinds of friends because on some level, those friends remind me so much of myself, so they help me love myself better. We are, in many ways, Barabbas because we're self-worshippers. And so we love people who remind us of ourselves. So we do this with Jesus the same way the Jews did with Barabbas. We highlight things about Jesus that resonate with us and we ignore the rest. So what does this look like? What could this look like for us? Well, if my greatest affections are engaged by my politics, then I will create a Jesus Barabbas that looks like a Republican Barabbas or even a Democratic uh, Barabbas. If my greatest affections are engaged by, by my ethnicity alone, then I will create an exclusively a black Jesus or a white Jesus Barabbas or a Hispanic Jesus Barabbas or an Asian uh, Jesus Barabbas. If my greatest affections are engaged by my schooling choice, then I'll create a homeschool Jesus. There are those. Or I'll create a public school or a private Christian school. There's crazy stories that I could say right now that would back that up, and some of y'all know those, but we won't go there. We want a savior to look like us. We want a savior uh, so much that we hijack certain attributes from him and we make them exclusive. And so we custom fit Jesus to look like us, but we don't look like him. We just look like a cheap counterfeit, like Barabbas. This is who we become. And finally, when we look at uh, another aspect here that we need to find, because ultimately, if you realize, okay, I want Barabbas, I am Barabbas, then I'm stuck kind of looking at myself going, well, what else can I do? Like, I am who I am. I can't do anything now. Like, this is, this is my default. This is how I function now. I, I can't be any more than what I am right now. I, I, I like what I like, and, and, and I see what I see, and I want what I want, and I can't change that. That's just who I am. That's my wiring, right? But ultimately, we need to be reminded that not only uh, do we want Barabbas, not only uh, are we Barabbas, Jesus died for Barabbas. Even the saviors that cannot save us 
the saviors that we start to look like and talk like. Some of, we can choose or even elect leaders, political leaders that don't talk anything like Jesus, but we've convinced ourselves that they do. And then we start talking like they do, thinking like they do. It feels hopeless when you see it, or when you are it. It feels hopeless when you're like, it just seems like the, the, the rhetoric is changing and the way we're functioning, the way we talk to each other is changing. And we are, we're, we're, we're going through this metamorphosis and we're becoming something different. There is a hope in seeing that Jesus even dies for the false savior, even dies for the counterfeit savior. I don't want you leaving this sermon thinking, I've got to figure out how to stop looking like Barabbas. I'm going to buckle down and work harder at this thing. Don't get me wrong. I pray that we feel convinced of the ways in which and convicted of the ways in which we do not look like God. We don't look like Jesus truly. I want us to see areas in our hearts where we really are falling short. But the answer here does not start with work harder. That's going to be a death sentence here. That means I, let me find ways to, to not look like that person. Let me, let me post things to show people that I'm not like those people. Let me, that's going to be a death sentence because you're going to keep this checklist trying to figure out, okay, how do I make people know that I'm not this? How do I make people know that I'm not that? Every one of us came into this world longing for and looking like Barabbas. All of us search for a savior like Barabbas to meet what we think our greatest needs are. But Barabbas was insufficient to save himself. Remember that. Jesus Christ took Barabbas's place. As a matter of fact, Barabbas is the only man in history who could literally say, Jesus took his place in suffering a Roman execution. Jesus Barabbas was insufficient to save himself. Think about this. The person, the one that you're looking at to be your great savior, the one that you think is going to restore power, the one that you think is going to make something great for you, they can't even save themselves. They are still subject to the same issues and sinful traps that we all are. They can't save themselves. They cannot save you. You need, not you want, you need a different Jesus. Barabbas can't do it for you. Barabbas can't do it for me. Your false Messiah cannot save you. Your politics will not save you or America. Your pride, racial, ethnic, whatever it is, won't save you or your people. Your cultural preferences won't save you or your people. Anything outside of being reconciled to God and then properly reconciled to each other, even to the degree that we are able to know what it means to love each other well, anything outside of that will fail you, will fail me every single time. You do not work harder to fix this problem because you and I are fundamentally flawed from the beginning. We need something outside of ourselves to save us, just like Barabbas. Now, this is not, hear me, I'm not saying, all right, well, we just got to just let everything just happen and just pray for each other and that's it. No, there are many of us who know when we are living specifically in this very heavily charged political environment, we are in a situation where what it means to love each other well is on the chopping block. It just is. I don't need to give examples. I'm sure you all are thinking of some now. We are living in a time, and maybe we always have, but it's never been more emblazoned than it is now, in my opinion, at least in my lifetime, 
where we are specifically having to struggle on what it means to love people well, what it means to fight for the sake of loving people well, what it means to fight, not necessarily to hold on to our power, but what it means to fight in order to use power to care for and love others the way Jesus loves us. There is a battle right now, and we don't necessarily know what to do, and it can feel exhausting. And so on some level, we have to, yes, we have to still speak truth. We have to still say the things that are true, call out the things that offend God's heart. And at the same time, we also have to know that the father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. This, uh, ultimately, there is a sense of grace that we do have to have maybe even internally driving us so that, not so that we overlook the damage that people might be causing, but so that we don't actually feel like it's incumbent upon us to do all of the changing of the people. Because you can't. You didn't even change you. You can't change other people. God loved us. We say this all the time. He loved us so much. He didn't wait for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We, pre we quote Romans 5, 8 all the time. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in Barabbas's place. Jesus died in our place. And why did he die? To meet our actual greatest need. My greatest need isn't to be healed from the emotional scars, suffering from forms of abuse growing up. It's a, it's a big need. It's not even my greatest need. My greatest need isn't for the healing of scars of, of witnessing my mother rapidly degrade, partly due to some of the horrific physical abuse that she suffered in her own marriage, which ultimately culminated in her death. That is a major need. It's something that needs to be dealt with. But that isn't even my greatest need. Since you... Since I, since we were born looking like Barabbas, born condemned to this separation from God, our greatest need is to be remade to look like Jesus. And this is not just this individualist thing. If I'm being remade, then I'm being changed in how to love you well. If you're being remade, you're being changed in how to love me well. If you're being remade, then when that choice comes up, who do I choose? Which Jesus do I elect? The way we think is, how do I choose someone that's going to embody what it means to love each other well? Not restore my power, not restore my privilege, not restore my position, but utilizing that power, stewarding that power so that other people can be cared for and loved well. This is what we are called to be conformed to. This is what we are called to be uh, changed into. We need to be changed. And if we're in any place where you or I or anyone that we know is choosing a form of the Savior that looks more like Barabbas than Jesus, that is a sign real change is needed. And we talk about it. We identify it. We point it out. It might cause real division. Some of us are dealing with incredible division in our families, friendships, people that we knew, all of this, because, frankly, we're, we're, we have huge disagreements on what it means to love people well. Some of us are really frustrated about the ways in which people, people's lives are just overlooked callously, wantonly, recklessly. And it's super easy to just overlook and go, well, and some of us are maybe guilty of overlooking people and we feel like we're justified because we highlighted one or two things we think look like Jesus. So we ignore the 17 other things that don't. This is what idolatry looks like. 
This is what it means to have a false God. So I ask you, which Jesus are you clinging to today? We, we, we all have a Jesus Barabbas somewhere that is competing for our affections for Christ and therefore our affections for each other. Sometimes they're not necessarily sinful or, 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 or bad, but many times there are things that we've exalted to this ultimate place, this ultimate place where it's easy to overlook all the things that aren't on display in God's heart. It is a crucial and pivotal moment when you transition from believing in the Jesus you wish existed to believing in the real Jesus who meets our greatest needs. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today acknowledging some of these false saviors that we have created for ourselves or even false saviors that have been presented to us. God, as I look at even the political climate that we are in, in our cities, in our states, in our country. God, every time, specifically in this election season, many times we see multiple ways in which we will look at uh, so much of uh, the things that we wish were true about you and we ignore all the ways that your heart is not on display. We so often will look at uh, the things that we believe are more important, the things that are important to us, and we exalt them to be the things that are most important to you. And we overlook your heart and we overlook our neighbor because we continue to choose the wrong Jesus. We are choosing Barabbas when we are here and recreated to choose you. Father, I pray that you would really impress this truth upon our heart. I pray that when we are faced with choices, whether individually or corporately, that we would ask the question, which Jesus is on display? Anytime that we have to look for leaders, we pray, I pray that we would look and ask the question, which Jesus is on display? And I pray that any leader that we look to, anytime they stop looking like Jesus Christ and start looking like Jesus Barabbas, I pray that we would call that out, that we would still speak the truth about what that is, that no matter what the cost is, that we would do this only because we realize that it's not just about being right. It's not just about looking like we're on the right side. Father, we realize that that other Jesus cannot save us. And the moment we trust in that Jesus, we start to look like that Jesus and we stop looking like you. So God, I pray that you will break our hearts here. I pray that you will remake our hearts here. I pray that the power of your life, your death, your resurrection would create a new heart in us so that we no longer are clinging to a Jesus that we prefer versus the Jesus that truly exists because that is the only Jesus that can save us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we look at uh, coming into the table and walking into this truth, walking out this truth, when we come and partake of the elements, this is ultimately what we are communicating, that our greatest hope, we have a lot of hopes, a lot of well-placed hopes. We wanna see change, we wanna see justice, we wanna see uh, folks caring for each other, we wanna see people loved well. But what we try, we hope to hold on to is that ultimately all those things are necessary but we are looking forward to the time where those things will just be commonplace. Our greatest hope is in the work that was started and finished and culminated 
in the resurrection of Jesus. So if this, even when you look at the times that we're in and we are frustrated, hurting, and or if you, if you look at things individually in your own life, areas that have been really painful, areas that you know you have fallen short, your greatest hope can't be in your ability to, to, to fix things yourself, your ability to even choose the right kinds of people. Ultimately, our hope has to be in the finished work of Jesus, what that means individually and what that means corporately. That's our hope. So today, if that's true for you, if that's where your heart is, if that's where your hope is, albeit imperfectly, then this table, what is true and symbolized here, this is for you. If that's not where you are, our prayer is that, Lord, God would meet you where you are that God would meet you exactly where your hangups are, exactly where your doubts are, exactly where your frustrations are, that he would meet you there and show himself to you in such a way that you realize this is where I can place my hope. I have so many other places in my life and in my heart where I've created a Barabbas. I might have multiple areas of Barabbi, dare I say, in my heart that need to be challenged and changed. But the thing I hold to and hope in is the true Jesus, the Jesus that exists, the one that lived, died, resurrected for not only Barabbas, but for me. If that's where you are, this is for you. So we are reminded of the words that Paul gave us on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He gave thanks for the Passover meal. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood given for you. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul says that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. What are we proclaiming? We're saying that ultimately, all of these things that we want, that we need, our greatest needs, we are reminded of our greatest need over and over again. The only answer to being truly reconciled to God is the work that Jesus has done, the work that he has finished, the promise that he comes to make all things new again. That's what gives us the power. That's what gives us the strength to continue to fight all the places where we don't see his kingdom here. That's our hope. That's what we trust in. That's what we stand on. So with that, let's receive the benediction of God, this final blessing, this charge that God promises is true of himself. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.